Amen. So if you want to go ahead and flip your scriptures or turn them on to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28. It's important to realize that in the original text, there isn't kind of a, a paragraph separation with a heading in between. I think these two sections certainly go together, and it helps us understand this quote-unquote call to discipleship when we understand what Jesus is saying about his Messiahship. Uh, and so with that said, as you're flipping there, there's been many words uh, said in recent weeks and even in uh, years ago about uh, suffering in this life. From Romans 5, 1 to 5, we heard a lot about uh, how we rejoice in the midst of our suffering because of who Christ is for us and what God has done to us in him. Uh, and then back when Justin went through the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 8, this is a similar passage, obviously. Uh, Justin really focused on the theology of the cross and has Christ suffered and we are his followers uh, who are united to the light in a dark world. We too will suffer. But for our purposes this morning, I'm not going to focus us on the implication of the theology of the cross and a life of suffering. In our passage today, the Lord Jesus tells us that eternal life is only for, the, for dead people. It's only for people who have died. Uh, and what he's doing is he is highlighting this antithetical nature of the way of salvation and discipleship to natural human thinking. So the way of salvation and discipleship following after Jesus is completely antithetical to our fallen nature, to our normal human thinking. And so uh, my plan this morning is to look at this text in two sections. Section one verses 21 to 23, and then I want to reflect on that. And then let's look at section 2, uh, which is 24 to 28, and then I have a reflection and a conclusion for our time this morning. So I hope that clears it up for the note takers, and uh, it'll make it easy to track along. And so uh, as we begin, I will read God's holy, inspired uh, word this morning, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we praise the Lord for his word. And so let's look, let's begin our time looking at this first section starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples 
from that time is a demarcator. It's marking, it's a notifier that we're moving uh, from one part of Jesus' ministry to another. So from chapter 4 to right where we begin today, Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee. He's been healing people. He's been teaching, rejected by his own people, uh, accepted by Gentiles who come needy, helpless, but in faith to the Messiah, and their sins are forgiven. They're, they're healed, uh, if you will. And now we're turning at this point. And what's important for us to realize is right before this section, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? Elijah, John the Baptist, resurrected, yada, yada, yada. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the son of God, the Christ in the flesh, the promised one, the Messiah from God uh, is what Peter says. And at that point, they, uh, the scriptures say that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to Peter, but the Father who is in heaven by the Spirit has revealed this to Peter. So Peter makes this awesome confession that he's the Messiah. And from this point on, Jesus' face is set on the cross. He is going to die. And it's not until Peter confesses him as the Messiah that Jesus starts to reveal the nature of his kingdom, what he's about to do. He's going to die and suffer. And this is where we pick up today. So that from that time, uh, it says that uh, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Uh, this is the divine destiny of the Messiah. The beginning of chapter 1 was that Christ, he will be called Jesus and he will save his people from his sins. This is the divine uh, destiny and mission of the Messiah. So it's no coincidence that after uh, there is the confession of who he truly is, uh, that we begin to learn of his suffering. How he's the chosen one, the promised one who's come to save their people from their sins, to bring justice to victory. He will establish his kingdom forever. He will be enthroned uh, on a throne forever. And it's necessary, uh, verse 21 says, that he go and suffer many things. Uh, because this is the plan of God. It's necessary for the people of God to be saved from their sins. It's necessary that the Christ must suffer. And not only that, from the elders, the chief, and the priests, and the scribes. Uh, this is the means, these, these folks... Uh, you know, the leaders of Israel, of God's people, are the means uh, that through which the Messiah is killed. But here's the thing. Uh, the divine agency ultimately responsible for Jesus' suffering and his death, Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him because God will save his people from their sins. This is the will of God. And Peter, after confessing, it's the Messiah, the king has come. The Messiah says, you're right. And he gives this announcement of his kingdom. And Peter is like, absolutely not. That is not what is going to happen. So Peter, verse 22, who just confessed that this is the son of God in the flesh, now assumes that he knows better than the son of God in the flesh. And so respectfully pulls him to the side, away from the group. And he's like, look, Lord of the universe, through whom all creation was made, you shouldn't talk like this. This is, you know, in the scripture says he begins to rebuke him. He's just warming up on this scolding that he's about to give the Lord of creation. Uh, and, and your Bible probably has a footnote about the translation about what's behind Peter's words. Peter's basically looking at him and says, may God have mercy on you, Jesus. This will never happen to you. 
Like, may God have mercy that this would never happen. This is against his will. And so he follows up with this, like, this shall never happen to you. May God have mercy. This should never happen to you. He's, Peter's just, like, proclaiming that this is inconsistent with God's will. Like, so may God have mercy, because this isn't his will, that the king of glory would suffer. Uh, no way. Uh, but, but it is the way, because the Son of God has come to set his people free and establish his kingdom, not die. It's true. The Son of God has come to establish his kingdom and to set his people free. And the way that that will happen is completely antithetical to, to how we would save someone. And so verse 23, uh, you know, it says that Jesus turns, essentially, and maybe he turned his back on Peter. Just like, get behind me, Satan. Maybe he just stepped away. Who knows? Uh, but he looks at Peter and he calls him Satan. Although the words previously that Peter used were words revealed to him from the Father. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this thing to you. You know I'm the Messiah because God has revealed this to you. In the next section, he's speaking with man's words, with Satan's words, is what Jesus says. Uh, these are words similar to what Satan used to tempt Jesus. You can have glory now. Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you, you're not going to go die. You're the king of glory. Set up your kingdom now. It's inconsistent that you would suffer. The same words that Satan used with Adam. God is, God is, you're missing out. There is more and God doesn't want you to have it now. So go and have it now. These are the words of Satan. Glory now. Comfort now. Happiness now. Best life now. What I want Get it. What my heart desires, go after it. And so it's with a human perspective that Peter speaks. We learn that in this later section. You're, you're or right at the end of verse 23. You're setting your mind on the, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. So natural to man is the way of Satan. We are children of Adam. And natural to us, we don't want God's will. We want our will. And what we learn is our will is equal to Satan's. Glory now. Happiness now. Over and above the will of God, of course. And so we're going to you know, talk a little bit more about human perspective in this second section. I want to pause this now and just reflect. Because ironically, Peter tells Jesus, he prays that God would be merciful to Jesus. But ironically, Jesus doesn't need mercy for himself. He is mercy in the flesh. And he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath so that others will receive God's mercy. Not because they've earned it, because God is good. And so Jesus, at this point, has been announced as the Son of God. And he's like, you're right. And now I'm going to tell you about my kingdom. So here, here's the big announcement that the disciples have been waiting for. But it doesn't begin with this gaudy, loud announcement. It's not this huge display of the kingdom of God. It doesn't come with riches or gold. It doesn't come with the praise of the world. It comes with learning obedience through suffering to the point of death. And this was offensive to the disciples. Peter just says the quiet stuff out loud. And I'm grateful for it. It was offensive because the servant of the Lord is to come and to establish his kingdom, to give his people Earthly happiness forever, right? This is what the, the kingdom of God is about. And his people are saved forever. No more sin. 
No more pain. But instead, it sounds like the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. What? This is... So Peter rebukes him. Don't talk about a cross. You do not talk about a cross, Lord. You are God in the flesh. And giving Peter all due credit, this is God in the flesh. All honor and glory and dominion is yours. Jesus, suffering? What? Rejected by his own people? You see, the way of salvation is in direct opposition to the way of fallen humanity. And as we see, the great human concern is self-preservation. We want to prolong death and we want to escape suffering. I mean, this is just innate to us. We want comfort, not suffering. Of course, we want triumphant lives that never see disappointment. We want the good life and we want it our way and we want it now. We want glory now, riches now, happiness now. And of course, no one in here wants suffering over happiness. That, the, the thing about it is the motive. We uh, exchange the truth of God for a lie. However, the king is coming to establish his throne. This is what the prophets proclaim. The, the kingdom where sin is no more. Where all the enemies of God's people are destroyed. And we live together in the perfect glory of God forever. The disciples know he's the son of God. They, they are anticipating the earthly kingdom. The fulfillment of all the prophecies. And right after they confess that Christ is the Messiah. The way of the Messiah becomes a stumbling block. Because God is most concerned. With saving his people. And so it is absolutely necessary. For Jesus to suffer and to die. To accomplish the purpose of God. From all eternity. In saving his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. For we had our chance. In Adam. Completely free. To do good or to do wrong. What did Adam do? Believe the lies of Satan. And he fell. And since then, every man after them, every person after Adam, ruined by the fall. Not only do we not do righteousness, not only do we not love the truth, but we love evil. We're all about self. Even doing very moral things in this life, we do it for sinful motives. Everything about us is ruined by the fall. Nothing about us could earn anything from God except judgment. He is perfect. He's good. He's holy. He's altogether righteous. And we spurn against that. But the Lord God of creation promised a savior to come from the seed of the woman. In Isaiah 52, 9, break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. As many uh, were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance in this form beyond that of the children of mankind. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced not for his own transgression, for our transgression. He was our substitute. He was crushed not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge that the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, not to give them a good example so that they might earn salvation on their own. He came to be salvation for us. And he shall bear their iniquities. And he did not fail, saints. He humbled himself to the point of death because we deserve death. And so we heard Psalm 22, verse 1. The whole psalm read with that verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? These were the words of the King of glory on the cross in your stead. This is the roar of desperate agony, but not because he was rebellious. It's the hellish cry of the undiluted, full wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve for all eternity. The Father laid it upon him. And he cries out, don't forsake me. The Christ who knew no sin became sin for you. And here in the darkest moment of his life, He cries out to the Father. There is no help. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted with my breast. In his greatest time of need, he cries out. But the Father abandons God the Son in the flesh. Because he will never abandon you. Because Jesus is our substitute. The punishment and the abandonment that we deserve forever from God, was placed upon Jesus. He stood in our stead. He suffered on our behalf. It was our forsakenness that he took upon himself, church. He took our sins away. And as Jojo says, he's never given them back. We're brought from the grave of darkness into marvelous light. And the Lord God Almighty has given you faith in His Son, has united you to the Lord Jesus, the King of glory, the one through whom and for whom reality even exists. And He sent you a preacher to proclaim the good news and you believed it. And today He gives you a preacher to proclaim the good news and you're still believing it. And now we love Him because He first loved us. And this sends us back to the text with some good understanding and to be able to situate ourselves and understand uh, what we're being called to uh, in this next section. Praise the Lord for His goodness to us. And so not only was Peter's assumption wrong, right, that God couldn't possibly desire that the Messiah would die. It's actually His plan. Um. But keep in mind that uh, there is no paragraph break here. Uh, And so as we go into this this second section, he goes from rebuking Peter about uh, what's going to happen and how Peter is thinking like man. He's using the words of Satan. 
and he's going to kind of direct his attention to all the disciples. He's going to continue what he's saying. When, he, when he's rebuking Peter, he's now turned to the disciples and he's continuing. So we've got to keep what we just considered in mind as we move to this next section. So Jesus then told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So he calls the disciples to walk in the very reality that Peter just scolded Jesus for. So Peter's like, you can't suffer and die. Jesus rebukes him and then says, we're all going to suffer and die. He calls them to the very thing. Not only will I, but you will too. Uh, and so he says, we're going to deny ourselves. We just witnessed the exact opposite in Peter of denying yourself. Right? Peter says, you're the Messiah. As soon as he says he suffers, all denial is out. He's like, no, you're not. That's not what's happening. That is an example of not denying yourself. That's fallen humanity talking, rebuking the Lord Jesus for talking about the plan of salvation. This is our nature. Uh, it's, you know, this, this deny yourself is denying your self-preservation, which is natural to you. It's denying this, your own glory, your own power now, your own autonomy now. Think about Jesus in the garden. Maybe the prime example of denying yourself. If there's another way, Father, yet not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus is saying that we must deny themselves, but what is to be denied? If we're thinking about what happened with Peter, it's denying fallen humanity. It's denying this desire to be our own Savior. It's denying this uh, this reality that we have goodness and righteousness within us and with with God's mercy and with our goodness will be all right in the end. This desire for glory now, this desire for riches now, this desire that there's no way it's God's plan that we might face disappointment in this life. It's forsaken, again, your own notions of goodness and righteousness, your own wisdom. It's forsaking your own will. Which, as we just saw in Peter, our will is contrary to the way of salvation. This is the narrow gate, in fact. And wide is the gate filled with people who trust in themselves. Narrow is the gate which only Christ's righteousness fits through the door. And only His righteousness is allowed entrance. And so Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Obviously, the cross was a symbol of death. You know, the one who even was going to die on the cross carried their own cross up the hill. This is the analogy. So he's saying, deny yourself, die. Death and suffering. And we should understand that, that there is a unique way in which the early church bore a cross of persecution Many throughout history since then have borne a similar cross of persecution for righteousness sake by way of torture and by death. Uh, and, and, and so too with us in one sense that as they killed Jesus, who was the perfect son of God, they are going to hate us, children of the light in a world of darkness. Uh, because all things have not yet been made new. Trial, temptations of every kind are going to be against us. The world, our flesh, and Satan are against us. In that way, we have a cross to bear. They hated Jesus, they'll hate us. If he experienced much suffering, so too with us. However, as we 
agree with that. However, Jesus' cross was the only cross of redemption. No other cross bearing has saved a person. No one was killed for Jesus' sake and got to heaven because of that. It's important to remember as we consider this. No one will get the glories of heaven by taking the cross for Jesus or by dying for Jesus. Galatians 3.6, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So no you know, marching orders after Christ, after we believe the life that we live, however we live that, doesn't get us to heaven. Actually, because we are good with God, the rest of our lives look different. And as we see, it's going to be filled with suffering. Uh, so it's true that there are demands upon followers of Jesus. There are demands and there's costs to discipleship. But God delivers all the demands that he requires. The call to deny yourself and spiritually, de- to, to, and spiritually die is a demand that damns us if it's up to us to do it. He calls Peter Satan because he's thinking like a human. Previously, the only reason he said you're the Messiah wasn't because he had a, a better version of himself. Who revealed that to him? The Father in heaven. So the only way that he is going to deny himself and confess the right things, or if we will, live the right way, is if the Father does it. Because we're slaves to our nature. So let us remember that, uh, you know, when Jesus is going to the cross, or let, let us remember, but see this as an example, that this can't be, this is like Jesus saying, be born again to Nicodemus. How am I going to get into heaven? Be born again. What? Take a, basically, it's like, if anyone wants to be saved, Deny yourself and die. Follow me. Okay? And so, if we ever thought that this was the way, that it's Jesus' cross plus our cross bearing in the Christian life, that's, that's heresy. We should reject that. That doesn't get us to heaven. Because remember, when Jesus is going to the cross, all the disciples scatter and run. They didn't deny themselves and bear a cross. Jesus goes to the cross alone to die for us. Only his cross saves And they scatter and run because of verse 25 and 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Ours is a nature that tends towards gaining the whole world, not denying ourselves. Ours is a nature that's primarily concerned with self-preservation, not dying. And Jesus has called them to do the exact opposite of what's natural to them. See, our eyes are set on the here and now. We are people that follow the motto YOLO, right? You only live once, so live right. Live it well. Get all you can this side of heaven or this side of death. Best life now, American dream. Ours is a self-willed nature that drifts towards self-preserving. And the end result is that we lose our souls. Romans 1, we exchange, again, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we live in our own kingdoms and we justify it. This is natural to us. But what does it profit a man? If we go on that journey, get all that we want out of this life and lose our soul. Out of all that you gain in this life doing that, what do you have to give when you don't have a soul? 
and, and your eternal destiny is death. Separation from God forever. You lived your whole life trying to get life. And in the end, it's death. Or we die now and get life. Which is interesting, right? Like, where in the scriptures do we ever learn that death leads to life? When and how and where? It's like, this is a bit antithetical, right? Like, so in dying we live. Have you guys ever heard this before? Think about the waters of baptism. Think about Romans 6. Do you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we were united to Christ. This is what our, our, our baptism signifies, that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in the newness of life. So here Jesus is saying, you want to follow me. You want to be saved. Here's the narrow gate. Do the things you can't do. Deny yourself and die. And apparently that death is supposed to lead to life. Can any of you kill yourselves and lead the life? This makes no sense apart from the saving grace of Christ Jesus. This makes no sense apart from what we just considered uh, about Jesus going to suffer for us. And this is good news. This is not a, a harsh demand that now that Christ has done this for you, you've got to live a life of denial and cross-bearing so that you make it. No, 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 no. Because the Lord Jesus has done that and you've been united to him, your new identity is one in which you deny yourself and you constantly remember your baptism, that you have died with Christ to that old nature and you have a new one. Welcome to discipleship. Hallelujah. This is, this is our new identity. This is the new function of our life. Rather than a, are you denying yourself? Are you taking up your cross? And we're all fearful that if we've not done that enough, we're not going to make it to heaven. And so we're introspective to the point that we, we don't even serve our neighbors. We're just trying to please God. And I just spent, you know, 20 minutes a second ago saying that the Father's pleased by the life and the death of Christ. And because you are in him, he's pleased with you and given you life in him, which is one of denying yourself. You're not a slave to your old sins. It's one of remembering your death. Your sins are gone. In Christ Jesus is one of following Jesus. You have a new life. And we'll reflect briefly on this at the end of our time. So I'll move us on to verse 27 and then 28. Uh, because it seems like like just a, a straight hard right and then a hard left. Like what just happened in these two verses after what we just considered? Because he says, for the son of man is going to come with angels in the glory of his father. And he'll repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's just kind of like, all right, out of left field. It's what it kind of feels like after thinking about salvation and discipleship and our new life. And um, Here's what I think is the beauty in this text. Uh, instead of living for ourselves and gaining death and losing our souls, uh, we have gained life. And when judgment day comes, we are found righteous in the Son of God. I think it's, it's beautifully put. Look, if anyone's going to make it, they've got to die. They've got to be perfect. Uh, they've got to follow me. And as we consider the, what that means, it's like because when judgment day comes, you're rewarded to what you've done. And we just kind of uh, 
you know, understood that, well, if we're going to be rewarded with righteousness, it's not our own. It's Christ's. And so this is also a, now there might be some in here that are seeking life, that, that, that do not trust in the Lord Jesus. And judgment day is a fearful thing because outside of Christ, God is terrible. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And so this is the trust Christ today. Be found righteous at judgment day today by believing upon the Lord Jesus, who is more merciful and more gracious than you are a sinner who hates God. Today is the day of salvation. So that judgment day is a day that we long for. It's a day that we long for, and it's a day that reminds us that uh, as we have this new life in Christ, Ephesians 2, we're actually going to be rewarded for the good works that we get from life in Christ. We're going to live better lives because we're united to Christ, and then the Lord is going to reward us for it at the end of time. He is a gracious God. This is completely antithetical to the way we think. And so then verse 28 There's two plausible interpretations here. Some commentators point to the reality of the kingdom of God coming uh, and and bringing judgment with events like at Pentecost, uh, you know, John's prophecy in the book of Revelation, how he kind of completes uh, what the kingdom of God is like and what will happen. Um, In 70 AD, the Olivet Discourse, all these fulfillments that are types and shadows of the greater uh, judgment. It could be that. And I actually think that what's being talked about here is this next section that we'll consider next week, the transfiguration, simply because he says some of you uh, will, excuse me, um, some of you standing here will not taste death. And then the next section, he takes Peter, James and John, some of them, and he literally shows them his glory. He transforms. And it says here that until uh, some of you standing here, until you see the man the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And so then, the Lord takes them on a mountain, transforms, shows how He's the fulfillment of all the law, of all the prophets, and the Father says, this is the one in whom I'm pleased. Which then goes right back to the fact that Judgment Day is excite, exciting for us. Because the Father is pleased with the Son. And we're sons and daughters of the King. Uh, so I think that's what's happening um, in, in that last verse. And the point is that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old covenant by establishing a new covenant in his blood. And so, you know, as we kind of come to the end of considering our text, and and I want us to reflect, following Jesus is to be his disciple. um, To have a relationship with Jesus. A, A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus who has an intimate, instructive Imitated, imitated relationship with Jesus, all true. And it is to have hope, as, a, as a, only a disciple would, that as he is united to Christ, therefore he will be found in him on judgment. Uh, so I want us to reflect uh, now on how discipleship is a gift of being in Christ. Because what we do in the Christian life only comes after and through what Christ has done for us. Because of who we are, that determines what we do. And in ourselves, we speak like Satan. We have our things on uh, the things of man. We have our minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. And we, as Peter did in the above section, need the Father to reveal to us the truth, which he has 
by us believing the law and the gospel and being united to Christ. Now consider for me now. I want to talk, I want to like hone in on the fact that we have new natures. This is, this is what I want us to consider as we think about life in Christ. Discipleship is a fruit of life in Christ. Now considering life in Christ. We are dead and weak in our natural state. We've considered this. We're, we're irrecoverable. There's no recovering our, our dead nature. It's dead. Uh, and Christ has not come to recover our natural state to make it better. Our old nature isn't recovering by denying ourselves, by taking up our cross, and by following Jesus. The way of the kingdom is death now and glory later. Our old nature hasn't been recovered. It has died. It has died and we've been raised with a new life that has been given to us. The Christian life is a given life. It's not a recover your flesh, recover your old nature life. It's a get a new nature and hope for the resurrection when you get a new body life. And so now that we have a new nature, we deny ourselves. We deny our flesh. We embrace our Savior in the sufferings of his kingdom because we are children of the light in a dark world. And the Lord has made himself the king of our hearts and the king of our minds. And so this new nature is formed in Christ and it is ready for us to partake in. Just like the nature we received in Adam, it was ready for us to get up and go and be natural sinners. Now we have a new nature prepared for us in the life of Christ where we are get up, ready to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow the Lord. We have new life. This is our new nature. And that's good news. The problem is our flesh. Though we serve the law of God with our minds, our flesh and our members are serving a different law. We're still chained to this old way of thinking. Martin Luther says we have you know, been buried in baptism. We've, we've died. The old man is dead and we have new life. But the dead man floats. And it follows us around and it won't go anywhere. And so we feel like, man, we look at this verse and it's like, there's no way I'm getting to heaven if that's what I got to do. Well, of course, in our in our nature, that's not what happened. But we have been given a new one that denies self, takes up its cross and follows Jesus. And one writer, I think he can probably sum up everything I just tried to say better than than I said it. He says it this way. Christ died, not that we might be able to form a holy nature in ourselves. But we might receive one prepared and formed in Christ for us by union and fellowship with him by faith. Remember what our baptism signifies. In John 12, uh, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Similarly, in Isaiah 53, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And after his soul makes offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Christ has died. And it has borne much fruit. You are the fruit of the death of Christ. You are the fruit. You are the offspring that he shall see. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ dies to bear much fruit. That's us. We in him have died and we bear much fruit. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Not to be saved, but because we're saved. You will 
love the Lord because you have a new heart. You have a new nature. And I think that as we consider the fact that our life is hidden with Christ and how, you know, when we die, we gain, because when Christ appears, then we will be like him. Christ, who is our life, appears. We will be like him. So as you have a new nature now, but battle the flesh, remember that it is your freedom to deny what's natural to you, to embrace what's not natural to you, the cross, death, following Jesus, new life. So to end our time, to conclude our time, I have two practical considerations for us. Number one, uh, denying your own will is your new way of living. Denying your own will is your new way of living. We deny our own will for our life and we embrace God's will for our life. What is that? Well, of course, it's trusting in Christ, not ourselves. Uh, It's trusting in the Lord's goodness and his wisdom and his will, not our own. And knowing that Christ is all, that we contribute nothing to our salvation and we receive it all. And now to keep his commandments is to love and his commandments are not burdensome. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow you. I hope that sounds like good news as people with new natures. Because you were a slave to your flesh. You were actually a slave to the life that you tried to pursue and it leads to death, as we've seen. And you don't follow the king. All of that's been done away with and you do deny your flesh now. You do embrace a death and a righteousness and now you follow the king. And these commandments that we follow, they're not burdensome. Like I said, 1 John 5, 3. And because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now we who are in Christ, we serve, but we do so out of love. We don't do so out of fear. You know, we desire to serve God, yet we realize that he's not the one who needs our service. God doesn't need us to serve him, but we desire to serve God. But he doesn't lack anything that we would give him. But as free people, we see that working for our neighbor's good is our service to God. Working to see each other matured in Christ is service to God. Discipleship, walking in new life, And taking care of one another is your service to God. Now the difficult part is when we realize that this often just means going through the motions of everyday life. It's not always mission trips to India and thousands of people getting saved. It's the everyday motions in life that we serve our neighbor. And we don't see much fruit, but we still walk in newness of life. Loving those whom God has placed closest to us, serving our families. The simplicity of serving our neighbors our neighbors can be a stumbling block to us, though. We can feel like, man, I'm just not doing anything for the Lord. But how you consider your spouse and serve them, how you consider your children, and don't frustrate them, but serve them as you discipline them and bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. How you uh, go out of your way to take care of each other. This is the simplicity of service to neighbor. That the Lord is honored and it's how he's building his church. So I just want to say, consider how you're serving those closest to you. You know, is it always that you're wanting to be served or are you thinking about ways that you can deny that desire to always be served and serve one another? 
So think about those things. Think about how uh, in your relationships, do you live for the kingdom of self? Are you remembering the kingdom of God where it's not about you? It's about the interest of others. I think these are good things to consider in our freedom. In our freedom. Just remember that. Second thing as we close our time, the goal of discipleship. The goal of discipleship, this is going to sound anticlimactic, is that we suffer well. The goal of discipleship, following Jesus and walking together, is that we suffer well in this life. We're united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, and and ultimately we're reminding each other of the hope that we have. That when Christ appears, we're going to be like him. And so as we suffer and as we face disappointments and as we're going through the daily grind of just serving those whom God has put close to us, as we're denying ourselves and taking up our cross and walking in newness of life, we're reminding each other of hope. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We'll be like him. We'll sin no more. Tears are gone. No more frustration. No more disappointments. And that is the end result of the kingdom of God that begins with death. Hebrews 2, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, who was that joy? Us. He went to the cross because he is so joyful that you are his bride and he is anticipating coming back to be with you. By the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he seated at the right hand of the throne of God, eagerly awaiting to be with us praying for us beside the Father even now, interceding for us. And so we deny ourselves in our new identity, embrace death, and walk in newness of life, eagerly awaiting the glorious day that he comes to give us. And so let's close our time in prayer.